My name is Don, and I am an alcoholic. And tonight I'm a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. It just means I haven't had a drink today. I do this quite a bit, and it's never easy. Because at this point in time, I don't have anything in my head. <laughs> and prior to my... Uh, Getting up here, I always ask God to please fill me with his love and let it flow through me and into the lives of others. And when I see you sitting there, I am surely filled with God's love. There's no question of that. I belong in and to Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> it's the only place I ever belonged in my life. But I definitely belong here. December 26th of 1967, God gave me back my life as a free, clear gift. And then he gave me Alcoholics Anonymous, so that that gift could take on some purpose <clears throat> and some dimension and some value. Because I think that probably the greatest pain that I've ever experienced or heard anyone else experience is that sense of knowing one day that your life is absolutely useless. And uh, I felt that. <clears throat> and since coming to you, I have not had one single day in my life when I felt useless. I have been confused <laughs> and baffled and frightened, but never useless. So if you never bring anything else to me, thank you for that. My life has counted for something. In fact, that was one of the early things they offered me. They said, Don, we think we can show you how to learn to live a life that will make sense to you. <laughs> that was a whole new idea to me. You know, I'd never done that. I had always tried to live my life so it made sense to you. And my life never made any sense to anybody. And i got to tell you today, one of the joys of my life is that I know a lot of people who don't think my life makes any sense at all. <laughs> But like an old convict told me one time, he says, don't worry about them, Don, there isn't one of them going to put a scrap of bread on your table. <laughs> I drank alcoholically from my very first drink, as far as I know. I don't have the vaguest idea what controlled drinking is. Uh, the first real drunk I went on, I nearly died of an overdose of alcohol. I drank so much they had to walk me around and pour coffee in me and keep me on my feet so I wouldn't die. And as I understand it, that experience is traumatic enough that if I were anything but an alcoholic, I probably wouldn't have done that again. <laughs> I'd just start hanging around with people that were willing to carry you around and walk you around and keep you on your feet so you don't die. <laughs> I puked a lot that night. And I learned to live through that. <clears throat> I, uh, as a direct result of alcoholism, I reached a place on Christmas week of 1967 where I could no longer stand to be me. And I did not know what was wrong with me. The burning question in my life has always been, what's wrong with me? Because something obviously was. I knew it. Other people knew it. They kept saying it. I kept saying it. I never lived up to my potential. 
<laughs> Do you know that all my inventory under principles was potential? I resented potential. And they're right. I have never lived up to my potential. Because I don't know what the hell it is. I know it isn't going to be enough if I do it. <laughs> I was in my first federal penitentiary when I was 19 years old as a direct result of alcoholism and didn't know that. I have been in three penitentiaries during my life and got sober in my last one. And I don't say that as a status symbol. I simply tell you that because I have to talk about penitentiaries because that's where I've been. But I was never a big-time gangster. The big-time gangsters don't even get into one penitentiary. I, you know, <clears throat> I was beginning to make a habit out of this. And I was baffled because that is not what I wanted for my life. All I've ever wanted to be was a Boy Scout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, I've made tenderfoot three times. <laughs> I'm the kind of Boy Scout who, in his desperate need to be liked, helped little ladies across the street and didn't ask them if they wanted to go. One of my major character defects is an incredible rudeness. I would intrude into your life without ever considering that I might be intruding. I don't like people that do that, and I was one of them. Anyway, this particular week, and I want to get to it because I only have one message for you. If you are alcoholic, you don't ever have to drink alcohol again. Now, I could sit down because that's it, but I won't. <laughs> I came a long way to share this with you, <laughs> and you're going to listen. <laughs> But I had reached the point where I got a look at my life that week. <clears throat> I was, uh, I weighed 133 pounds at that time, and I was on federal parole for an indiscretion I'd committed in 1966. My two little boys were living with me, why I don't know. I'm not the only one that was insane, social services kept giving them back to me. And we lived in a $40 a month basement apartment beneath an old lady who had cats. I mean, she had cats everywhere. But as I looked around that week, it became apparent to me that her place was cleaner than mine was. And part of that image I had of me cracked. Uh, I'm one of those people that, as a result of alcoholism, also used a lot of drugs. I'm not a drug addict, but I used a lot of drugs. If anybody wants to talk about that later, we can talk about that. But I had always prided myself on never turning on young people. I'm one of the maniacs that came roaring out of Berkeley in the 60s, throwing LSD around freely and screaming, where there's dope, there's hope, burn down City Hall. Yeah. But I'd always said I'd never turned on young people. Well, that was the week that I couldn't get out of bed until my connection got there to get me up. He was 16 years old, and I had turned him on, and I was using him. And I saw that. And another piece of me broke. The lies that made up my life started to crumble. I, uh, God does love those little kids. 
We got our Christmas tree that year, Christmas Eve, of a dollar we'd found laying in the snow. I learned from running on the road over the years, there's money in the streets of America. You just have to keep your head down all the time. And there isn't much. But we'd found a dollar, and we bought the biggest tree on the lot for a dollar. And that ceiling in that room is about like this one is to me now. And I'm alcoholic, I need drama. It tilted. It was back in the room, and the top tilted over, and it was kind of pathetic. And a little piece of me broke. And we had decorated it with all the junk in the house that would fit on the tree. And somehow I knew that isn't what it was supposed to be like. <clears throat> this kid I was using had stolen a box of blue paper towel from some service station. Neither of us knew why it was there, so we stole it. <clears throat> That's what I taught him. My little boys had wrapped up everything in the house that would fit in blue paper towel and put it under the tree for me so I'd have a decent Christmas. And some more of me broke. Because their present was a little pair of cowboy boots and a shirt I'd gotten on credit from the public merchandise mart in Denver. And I really meant to pay for that as soon as the welfare check got there. <coughs> and I could see once again what was going on. You can't hear you? Okay, is that a little better? That isn't getting a little loud? Okay. I can't talk any louder. Okay. <clears throat> On Christmas Day, the boys and I went down to my folks' place so that they could spend some time with Grandma and Grandpa. <clears throat> and my dad met us in the door and he said, Don, I'm sorry, but your mother says I can't let you in here anymore. She can't stand watching you die. And for the first time in my life, I saw clearly what I had been doing to my people. I'd always said in my madness, I'm not hurting anybody else. Leave me alone. But that day I saw it. <clears throat> and then Dad snuck us in anyway and made another lie evaporate because I also said nobody cares. Nobody loves us. And he loved us enough to jeopardize his own home that day made another lie out of it. And I saw clearly what I'd been doing to my kids. They were on the road with me. We lived on the road because I could not sit still. In the latter days of my alcoholism, 30 days was it and we had to move. I was restless, irritable, and discontented <laughs> to extreme and frightened because there was a train coming and it was going to hit me and I knew it. Uh, I chose the criminal life somewhere in my late 20s. Well, I went home, and without prolonging all of this, what I saw after I got past the self-pity was the fact that all of my dreams were dead and they were never going to happen. Everything I wanted for my life was never, ever going to happen. And my people's dreams for me were dead. Whatever they had in mind wasn't going to happen. <coughs> and that everybody, including my children, would be better off if I were here. That deep sense of absolute uselessness. There's only one thing you can do at that point. You surrender. You quit. I quit. It was a very crude quitting because I didn't know how to surrender, so I took a massive overdose of what I was using that week, drank everything in the house, and lay down and died. <laughs> The next morning, I experienced the deepest disappointment I've ever felt. 
But I died that night. Who I was is dead and gone. But I did not feel good. The police were at the door. They, uh, seems they had nine charges that they wanted to talk to me about. The first one called for three years to life in the penitentiary. And the Denver DA promised me that if I beat him on that one, he'd bring the rest of them one at a time. But I was through. I was off the street, and my federal parole officer tended to think that was probably a good idea. But I didn't care. For what it's worth, I had finally achieved a state of mind that is necessary to step onto any spiritual path. I became willing to go anywhere anybody said and do anything anybody said if it meant I didn't have to be me anymore. Didn't know what was wrong or didn't know there was any hope. I was living in a body that wouldn't die <laughs> with a mind that wouldn't work. <laughs> and I went around the Denver County Jail and detoxed for five months, got sober. And I can still remember, jail's a nifty place. There are people in this room tonight, unfortunately, that aren't through drinking. If you aren't, you'll make county jail somewhere. So let me tell you how to survive it so we can get back here. <laughs> the rules of county jail, whether it be in Montgomery, Alabama, or Northern California are the same. I lie to you for 10 minutes, you lie to me for 10 minutes. Then we both go take a nap. <laughs> That's it. We used to talk about what we're going to do as soon as we get out of here. All those big time gangsters who couldn't make a hundred dollar bond. <laughs> and I remember that, walking the chairs talking about it. And that's always the same too. We're going to get a keg of beer and an ounce of grass and we're going to get into the mountains and we're going to get loaded. We've earned it. And I can remember saying that, but I can also remember in here, I didn't want to do that anymore. I just didn't want to do that anymore. Well, they uh, made me a little deal, and I'm going to tell you about it because God entered into my life before I knew his name. The power of God is something I experienced before I ever got here. They offered me a deal. If I would plead guilty to a reduced charge, they would give me back to the federal people and they would bring me down to Fort Worth, Texas and fix me. <laughs> the other side of that was three years to life in the penitentiary and I'm not an idiot. Okay. Two things happened the day I was offered that. I was wanting to go anywhere and do anything. But I also knew that if you put me in a hospital with doctors and books, I'll be on the street in six months. They would tell me what was wrong with me, about how long it would take to fix that, and they would give me in front all the symptoms I'd have to present to them to convince them I was getting better. I've played that game since I was five years old. I'm really good at that. Well, I pled guilty. And they kept their word. 
They changed my age to 17 so I could qualify for their charge. I'm really much younger than I look. <laughs> Turned me over to the feds, and five days later, I was in the Colorado State Penitentiary saying, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> and I believe that's because of the direct intervention and the love of God. At the very last minute, the federal man who had made the deal changed his mind. I've talked with him since. He said, there's nothing we can do for this one anyway. Let's just get him off the street so he doesn't hurt himself or anybody else. They had me certified as a sociopath type 2 and a psychopath, and you can't help either one of those. One of them doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. The other one knows the difference and just doesn't give a damn. And I was both. <laughs> but because I had met the first requirement, I had quit. I had said at the deepest level I can say, Life's too tough for me. I can't do it. Change me. Do something with me. And a lot of it was beyond words. I was sent to where I could hear the message I needed to hear. I believe that anyone coming to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting for the first time is in the right place to hear whatever they need to hear. Whether it's stay here or go from here, they hear what they need to hear. Well, they called us down one afternoon and said, you will listen. I didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> so I came down and I listened. And what I was listening to were three guys with numbers on their chest. And one of them got up and he said, my name's Doc and I'm an alcoholic. And that means that I'm powerless over alcohol and guards and drugs and all of the circumstances of my life. And if any of you smart bastards think you can still manage your lives, look at the reward the state just gave you for the nifty job you've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> the miracle of the day was that I heard what he said I heard him then he said if you're alcoholic you don't ever have to drink again <laughs> and then one of them said uh, your very best thinking got you the penitentiary you're not doing so good are you <laughs> What am I going to do, argue with him? <laughs> we know a better way, they said. You come, when you get out of this fish tank, they invited us to come to their 12-step study school. Now, what that meant was that on Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon, we gave up the only two things there were in the week, yard and movie, to go to this 12-step study school, and we didn't even know what that was. But my friend Jim and I went, and they took such great care that there was a reminder note on the bunk of our new cell when we got there that that afternoon, if we would like, we could join them in the school. And Jim and I decided to go. You see, I wasn't afraid of that penitentiary, but I needed an answer. In 18 months, they were going to put me on the street, and I didn't know how to live out here. And I didn't want to keep this thing going. I needed to be changed, so I went. <laughs> I encountered sponsorship of the finest kind. We got into their little school and sat down, and there were three guys there, and the first one got up and he said, now, for the next five weeks, you new fellows have nothing to say. If you know anything at all, you wouldn't be here. 
they knew that new people have to talk. <laughs> we all worked down in the, in the dish room eight, nine hours a day, and they knew we'd talk to each other. They wouldn't listen to us. We didn't know anything. And uh, then they began the process that I've come to love. The first thing they did was tell me what's wrong with me in a way that I could hear. <clears throat> I was in my first penitentiary when I was 19 because of alcoholism. I joined the Navy to save America. Denver had gotten too small. And I loved the Navy. I really loved the Navy. I was a radarman and a radioman, and I got to steer the ship, and I got to play with the big kids, and I got to see the world. But there was one bad thing. <clears throat> they kept giving me liberty and expecting me to get back on time. <clears throat> and I meant to get back on time. It's the beginning of that thing of meaning to do things right and not being able to. I'd go ashore and I'd start to drink and I'd be 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes late getting back to that ship. One time it was 23 days late. <laughs> and when I got back, the ship wasn't there anymore. It was on its way to Korea, and they were really upset. At the time, that was a shooting offense. If it hadn't been that I was running with a guy that was smart and slick, who knows where I'd be today. He got us a Pan American Clipper and got us to Japan before the ship got there, and we were waiting for him. They couldn't shoot us anymore. And that made him even madder. <laughs> they told me why that happened to me. I found it in this big book called Alcoholics Anonymous and the experience they talked about. That happened to me because I have an allergy. Now if I had an allergy to tomatoes and I ate tomatoes, I'd break out with an itch. My allergy is alcohol. If I put alcohol in my body, I break out with a scream and mean itch for more alcohol. I can't quit. My choice is gone. It has nothing to do with whether I love my family or my work or myself or anything. I'm now subject to a craving, physical and mental, that's beyond anything I can bring to it. And I can relate to that because on day 22, I was in 